We're going to do the book of Zephaniah today. The book of Zephaniah and uh, Isaiah 40 is a familiar has a familiar passage in it to most of us if I can find it here. Isaiah 40, uh, he, uh, verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks mighty increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble blad- badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And if you read all of chapter 40 it's talking about how great God is but it's also looking at the fact that God doesn't ignore sin he doesn't ignore justice and those who are willing to wait on him for that justice to be to come about will actually surpass all of those whose hope is not in the Lord but it is interesting to note that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength so they're marked by strength they're, they're marked by walking, they're marked by, by running. Waiting on the Lord is not sitting on your hands waiting to see what God is going to do. Because we know what God is going to do. He declares it to us. He makes it, the, the, the ends He makes clear from the beginning. In Zephaniah, I almost feel like we're reading somebody else's mail. This is, this is written, this is an oracle written to the people of Israel talking about how God is going to deal with them from this point, and by this point I mean the time of Zephaniah moving forward. We're actually jumping back a little bit in time. This is before uh, the last time I think we saw Nineveh get destroyed. This is, this is before then. In fact, he's going to predict the fall of Nineveh. It comes right before the fall of Nineveh. And it looks from that point through to the point of the redemption of not only the whole world, but specifically Israel itself. So if we look at chapter 1, we get that context, context in verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So Hezekiah was the king who was in Jerusalem when the Assyrians came and they besieged the city. Hezekiah got in sackcloth and ashes, cried out to the Lord. He was a godly man, and the Lord answered his prayer and saved him from the Assyrians, slaughtering them out in front. And they they fled without Jerusalem having to defend itself more than just sit inside its walls. The next two generations that came along did not, the next two kings after Hezekiah did not follow the Lord. Manasseh was the worst of those two. And then came Josiah, Josiah the boy king. And if you're interested, I'm in 2 Kings 22 to 23 is where this story is told. We have Josiah, the, the, the boy who became king. And he actually, they find the book of the law and they read it. And he realizes we're in big trouble because God said, if we do all these things we've been doing basically for the last couple hundred years, we're toast. God's going to judge us. And so he repents and the Lord again relents of his anger at that time 
And back in 2 Kings, as we're looking at that story, we see that God doesn't just wait and say, okay, you've been good, I'm not going to judge you anymore. He still makes it clear that His judgment is coming. That His judgment has to take place. So that's the context, and that, that gives you an idea. I think that's why it's mentioned here. Not only that, but Zephaniah is in the royal line of David. He's just not in the, the line that the king moved through after Hezekiah. And so now we see the judgment that he proclaims. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So this is all encompassing destruction. This is God is going to come and judge the entire earth and nothing will, nothing will escape his judgment. He's, he is not a just God if there are those whose, whose lives are not judged along with everyone else. It's a complete judgment. And he brings this up to make it clear to Israel. And the Israelites would be, yes, good. God's going to judge all these terrible people on the whole earth. But then in verse 4, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So God says, yes, I'm going to judge all these people. And just like in Amos, when Amos starts with God's going to judge all these people around you for their evil deeds, and then he's going to turn his attention to Israel, and this is what I'm going to do to you. So in Zephaniah, God makes that clear that he first judges the whole earth, yes, but he's also going to judge Israel. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I'll cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the hosts of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought him, the Lord, who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. All these people that are double-minded, yes, they, they have the external appearance of being those who worship. They would fit in right here. Some of you may be those people, but they also worship everything else as well. They also turn to the world and everything it offers as well. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near and for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And there's a couple ways to take that. I take it that the sacrifice he's prepared is actually the people he's judging, and he set them apart. That's the picture we're given here, I believe. Then it will be about on that day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's son, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, I will build houses. They will build houses, but not inhabit 
and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. So this is going to come as a, as a sudden judgment on them and everyone will be affected. These people that are enjoying life who are saying, you know what, God really doesn't pay attention to our individual deeds. He really doesn't care what we do. We don't have to worry about uh, the Lord doing good or evil. We just live life. He started this world, sent it on its way. And now we're just spinning through the universe and we can do as we please. God says this is, this is definitely not how it works. I do want to back up to verse 12, though, because we're actually given what this looks like, where it says, I will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men. It goes on to describe them. If you turn back to Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel 9. And we're just going to read that chapter. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And I think these are angels that are coming. And I think Christ is with them, and we're going to see that here. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen, with a riding case at his loins, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly, utterly slay the old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is this mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? And he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. That should sound familiar to what we just read. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads." Then behold, the man clothed in linen at those loins, at, at whose loins was the written case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. So again, I think, I think the man in linen, I think that's a picture of Christ. It doesn't have to be for that to still carry the weight. And I do want to point out that over and over again, not only in Zephaniah, but in that passage, judgment starts with the leadership. So, what elders do we have in here? Jake? Yeah. You can tell the others. Um, judgment starts there. For those who lead, or those who are put in the responsibility of leadership, judgment starts there. In fact, it even mentions starting with the elders in that passage. They are the ones who God judges first, and then the judgment goes out. It starts at his own temple. 
Verse 14 then, back in Zephaniah 1, we, we get this shift back to the great day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, the day of wrath is that day, the day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities in the high corners. I will bring distress on men so they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That's quite a picture. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete end indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Just want to point out that the whole the, the, the main sin that's mentioned here is, the, is that they have provoked God to jealousy. That's the whole, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is not just saying Jesus Christ when you're not praying to him. It includes attributing to God things that are not God's and attributing to others that which belongs to God alone. Again, in the midst of this judgment of the whole world, God is declaring judgment on the city of Jerusalem. And there's a chapter break here, but there doesn't really need to be. He turns back to this nation without shame, and I think he's turning back to to the nation of Israel again. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation, without shame. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. Before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble on the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in that day of the Lord's anger. And we're going to see the importance of those who carry out the ordinances and the offerings and the appointed feasts here. And this is the first mention of that, and as we go through, I'll point that out uh, as we carry through the book. And then God turns attention to outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, but also, but, but not to the whole world, but to those countries that are around Jerusalem. And as you go around Jerusalem, if you go back and see where the original land was promised to Abraham and the original extent of what the promised land was, It's not the little sliver of land that we know of. It's not even just the sliver of land with a little bit of Gaza involved. Um, it's, it's, It's larger than that. And we see God promising that he is going to actually restore all of the land that was promised. And it starts with Gaza. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon a desolation. Ashdod will be driven out. At noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you so that there will be no inhabitants. So the seacoast will be pastures with caves for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lay down in the evening, for the Lord will care for them and restore their fortune. So basically, all the coast, 
That hole from the river to the sea, or from the, what is it, the sea to the river, river to the sea, whatever. That's what we're talking about. The promise that was made to Israel. All these nations that live on the coast, God is going to destroy them and give their land to Israel. I've heard the taunting of Moab. So now Moab would be like to the, it's backwards for you guys. Moab's going to be south and east. Um, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against the territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. And we're, we're introduced to this idea of a remnant. We kind of saw that back uh, when we were reading in Ezekiel that is there anyone left, Lord, as they go through and slaughter the people starting at the temple? And here that remnant is, is reintroduced. This they will, they will have in return for their pride because they have taunted and become arrogant against the people of the Lord. The Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him and everyone in his own place. You also, Ethiopians, now that would be going down into the Sinai Peninsula um, in that area. Uh, you, you also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All beasts which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars. Birds will sing in the windows. Desolation will be on the threshold. For he has laid bare the cedar work. This is an exultant city which tells securely, who says in her heart, I am and there is no one besides me. How she has become a desolation and a resting place for beasts. Everyone who passes by her will hiss and wave his hand in contempt. So we have the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Aramites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Ethiopians, all of these people, the Lord is, is promising to punish them, to mete out justice on them as well. And he makes the, spends the most times talking about Assyria itself because Assyria was the superpower at that time. They were the one power that nobody could touch. No one, it took a combination of several nations to actually be able to do anything to Assyria. But God brought them down as well. And it's, it's just reminding these other nations, you're nothing compared to Assyria. God will bring you to destruction as well. It is interesting that God states very clearly he's going to judge his people and then turns around and is punishing the nations that, that uh, mistreated his nation that he's planning on punishing. And we saw that when we looked at Assyria, that Assyria was the rod of God's anger. But God turns around and punishes Assyria for being a rod. And that's just how the sovereignty of God works. He can use even the most evil wickedness of man to accomplish his means. And it does not remove the responsibility that that those nations have, and we see that here. And again, if you want to see more of what exactly these countries are accused of doing and why God's judging them, uh, the book of Amos, I'd recommend that to you. He makes it very clear what each one of these nations has done. And now we turn back again at the, the start of chapter 3, 
And we deal with Jerusalem again. Woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. And that's why this is, this is Jerusalem that he's speaking of then. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening, and they leave nothing in the morning. Just point out really quick, when we studied Assyria and we discovered, studied the, uh, the destruction and, and where they were, their leaders were compared to roaring lions. Here God is really saying you're no different than these pagan nations. Your leadership isn't any different. And again, he turns back to the leadership. They're the first ones he brings forward, just as he brought forward priests in, the last cha- in chapter 1. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence in the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. For every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Even though God brings about his justice, day after day after day, and the the most clear example of that is to go to a cemetery and see we die. That is the justice of the Lord being carried out. That was the judgment that he gave with the first sin. You will die. Even though we see that men go on sinning without shame. I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I've made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. So, so God gives them the picture of this. He says, look, you've seen what I do to nations. You've seen what I've done, even in coming into the promised land. Just think of Jericho. Think of, think of the fact that the thick wall of Jericho came down in ruins, and all you had to do was obey me in marching around the city in the exact prescribed way I, I told you. And you saw this. And so I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. What a judgment against us as people. We see the judgment of God against evil. And yet not only are we tempted by evil and fail, we're eager to do so. Anyone who has not felt that in their own hearts, come talk to me afterwards, I'll help. I can, I can help you see where you're eager to do evil. We all are there. We all need the Lord. And we started here, but, but uh, now it comes, and I think this is, this is the center upon which this whole book rests, is verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Remember, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all of my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. And we're all like, oh yeah, Revelation, right? This is, John didn't introduce any large new ideas in Revelation. It's all here. This idea that God is going to gather the nations up, they're going to come against him, and he's going to strike them down with the fire of his fury and indignation. 
Whereas it says here, the fire of my zeal. And I just want to take a minute. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, dun, dun, dun. we have the scene in heaven, right? And we have this throne or this, 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 put a bookmark there or I won't find my way back. We have this throne that would be the throne or the temple or the seat where God reigns from. So maybe think of something other than just a chair. But here we have the throne of God. And he has these, uh, uh, these four living creatures surrounding him. And it describes them. And then it goes on. And uh, it, it turns out there's 24 elders in verse 10 that are, that are around him. And around them there's myriads and myriads of angels. There's, there's, there's more than, than you or I could count. It would be unbelievable And they're all saying what they said back in Isaiah when Isaiah went to the same spot. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In verse 11, worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Now, let's set this in the context of what's happening in Revelation. What's about to take place in Revelation? They're, God's about to judge the world, right? And they have a scroll, and, and it's like, well, who can come, or the book, and who can come and take it out of the book, and there's nobody found that can take it out of the book. And John starts to weep uncontrollably. Why does John start to weep uncontrollably? Because he's been waiting. Just as in Zephaniah, it says, you know, wait for me. That's what John's been doing. John's now at the end of time waiting for God to finally judge the earth. And there's nobody who's got the right to do it. Nobody is deserving of the title deed to take it and judge it. No one is worthy enough to have shown that they themselves have overcome on this world. And then we know that the Lamb of God comes steps forward and lamb standing as though slain and he is able to take the book but that's the that's the attitude of active waiting but to put it in another context because we are all fallen men and we're heathens this is like this is like the pregame um okay so like i haven't been in several years but like when you go to the huskers and you're watching the football game and it's pregame and they're warming up and then they go in the locker room and then they come out and the team's on the field and they're ready to start playing and everybody's cheering and then we start ch chanting Husker power back and forth, right? The two stadiums, East and West Stadium, back and forth. Um, East Stadium always wins. And that is what's going on as these people are chanting singing, depending on how you look at it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the emotion. They're ready for the game to get on. They're ready for the team to take the field, for Christ to come down and dominate the entire earth and take it back as his and judge all that's unrighteous, punish the wicked, and make right all the bad things that have happened 
to everyone since the beginning of time. Now, I do want to point out, when we sing holy, 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 we do it down here. And I would challenge you men, when you sing that song, it isn't a ballad to God. It's that same thing as when you are cheering on any of your favorite sport teams. That's the type of thing that's taking place here. We have waited on God long enough. How many times have you thought in your heart, how long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to put up with this? How long do we have to see this? And it isn't just come and make it right. It's come and make it right by punishing. It's come and making right by judging. And if that makes you uncomfortable, wonderful. Because that's who God is. He judges. He sets things right through his righteous deeds. If he doesn't do that, he doesn't punish his son on our behalf to make us able to stand before him. That's what waiting for me is. That's what waiting on the Lord looks like. When you start singing holy, 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 it's because you're looking forward to the fact that that God is the one who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he created everything. Everything exists because of him. He deserves all the praise and all the glory and all the power. And all these nations of the earth have not given it to him. He is going to judge them. In fact, there's some nations surrounding his chosen people that specifically rebel against God and against his people, and they get special judgment from God. And that's what we're seeing as Zephaniah works through you can get rid of the chapter headings. You don't need them. That's, this is all just one big march towards the justice of God being meted out. And we see there, well, we'll keep moving here. Verse 9, For then I will give to the peoples purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. And I mentioned earlier we have the ordinances, and now we have the offerings. And, and we get this picture that they're going to bring my offerings. And for those of you who have kind of thought ahead, and you're like, well, this, this is supposed to be end times. Why are they bringing offerings? You know, Jesus died on the cross. That's all gone, right? Ezekiel wrote about a temple, but it's not really a temple. That's, that's, that's metaphorical. Let's leave the offerings going on in Ezekiel in the end times alone when the new temple is built. But here, Zephaniah is saying, yeah, I'm going to honor the ones who, who obey my ordinances, and, and they're going to bring my offerings. And again, we don't have time for it here, and I challenge anyone to teach through Ezekiel in a Sunday school class. Um, feel free, uh, and you can, you can wrestle with that. But it seems to me here that the people of God meaning Israel, maybe I should make that clear, people of God, the church, Israel, all one people of God. There's only one people of God. There's only one. We have different roles, okay? We certainly saw that when we studied through Revelation, and we're, we're seeing that here. The people of God are, are the ones who are continuing to obey his ordinances and will continue to bring his offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exalted ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Well, we know in the church, our doctrine clearly states there's only one way to remove shame, and that's through the Son. 
So let's keep reading because this, you know, the fact that God has removed their shame, there has to be some sort of Christ involved in this. And it goes on to explain these people. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down and no one will make them tremble. Paul's in trouble when eternity comes because he's going to have a long line of people wanting to ask him questions. And I think one of the questions will be, you know what, Paul? You said something back in Romans. And you go, yeah, Romans got me in a lot of trouble. I know. Romans 11, verse 26. And so all of Israel will be saved. Can you define that for us? And he'll, all he'll have to say is, well, what Zephaniah said. I didn't produce anything new there. You all want to go to Romans, like Romans was some big new thought that, oh, all of Israel is going to be saved. Well, no, Zephaniah makes that very clear. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. That should blow your minds. How can a people do good? We can't do it. Have you seen the church lately? Individuals who are of the people of God can stand in that righteousness. Here, God is predicting in Zephaniah that the remnant will be just as, as restated in Romans chapter 11. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all of Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And here we're seeing that explained as well. So a remnant of Israel is going to be saved, and that remnant of Israel will be a humble and lowly people who take refuge in the name of the Lord, who do no wrong, who tell no lies. There will be no deceit in their tongue, will be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. We see finally this shalom, this peace. It even mentions it back in 2 Kings 19.31. We won't, we won't turn there. But we even see there that, that this remnant is promised. God selected his nation not because they were the greatest, but because they were the least. He goes out of his way to find people who think that they cannot truly offer anything great to him, and he makes them great. And it doesn't change with his nation, Israel. He has a covenant with them that he will provide. Now, now in Romans, it goes on to explain that the church, as we are in heaven, rejoicing at the throne room of God, and that's the picture we saw there when we looked at, at uh, Revelation 4. We have that picture of, of, of the church there. Romans does explain that, okay, if... if Israel hardening their hearts and we get and they get cut off and we get grafted in how much better for it will how much better for us the church will it be when when Israel's grafted back in and I think that's what we see in that picture of heaven with John weeping is that John is devastated that there's no one to take the book no one to, to judge the earth and then the lamb steps forward and he is able to judge the earth and when that happens 
all will be made right on the earth. We think we've got it good as the church. Wait until we're in heaven and God says, okay, now I'm going to make everything right. And part of that is, is my people will be my nation and they will love me and they will obey me and they will live in their land and all the nations of the earth will come to them and I'll destroy all my enemies. That's the greatness and the glory of Israel, God's chosen nation, that all of us as a people of God, including those of us who are the church, get to rejoice in. And it's a rejoicing that will even go beyond just the salvation of the church itself. Because we'll see God fully judge the earth and fully mete out on them, on it, righteousness. And in the midst of that, showing the mercy to his own people. Verse 14, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And here it is. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. How? Because the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. And that's the answer, right? Because Jesus, the one who judges the earth, as we see in Revelation, it's declared here in Zephaniah, this judgment all comes about because the king of Israel, who is also the Lord, and I suspect that's one of the places where it's Yahweh, right? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. How is it that their shame is removed? How is it that they can actually have all their sin removed from them? Why do they get to, re- to exult and rejoice? It's because the king is there. It all comes through the Messiah. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I can, I can get, I understand, I guess, from a human perspective, the confusion that took place when Christ came as a baby and was laid in a manger, right? And when he grew up, he's a suffering servant who was, who was killed by evil men when this is the picture that they're waiting for and they're still waiting for. You know, you can, you can say, well, well, Jesus fulfills all these Old Testament promises. He hasn't yet. He fulfilled the ones about his first advent. But there's more to come. Our Savior is not just a babe who lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins, is resurrected, and ascends into heaven. He also is the one who come back, comes back, conquers, reigns, rules over his country and his people, and they all follow him with faithfulness. That's when those of us who are in the church get to fully rejoice because we see our, our Savior not just as one who, is, who has had his heel bruised, but the one who has actually crushed the serpent's head. And that's what this is speaking of. This is the other half of that prophecy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. And that's the third reference 
to the importance of what God gave the nation Israel to show that they were different. To have the God of the universe living in their midst. To make them a clean or a separate people. We saw the, the ordinances and the offerings and the feasts. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And there's a, there's a uh, thought out there that Israel existed in the Old Testament to bring all nations to God and be a beacon on a hill for all nations to come to God. And I think sometimes this passage is used as that, and this passage is actually talking about the, the, the messianic kingdom that is set up on earth in our future and its role then. And this is what happens. At that time, I'll bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together, even indeed I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So it's a future event that we're looking forward to when Israel is that nation of which all the nations come to. They all come there, not because Solomon has great wisdom, not because of their great riches, not because of their military might, but because God himself is reigning in the city. God himself is there and he has vanquished all foes. That went quicker than it was supposed to, which is great. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just thank you and praise you that you are a God of justice, and part of that justice is that you will judge the earth, Lord. And Lord, we just, in our hearts, we, we feel compassion and, and we feel regret for those who know better than ourselves continue to reject you. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to share your, your glory and your plan, that we would do all we can, Lord, to spread the message of your salvation. But Lord, we understand that all these things, even your judgment on sinners, is ultimately for your glory, Lord. And even as we feel regret and even some personal shame that we belong where, where sinners end up, Lord, we also feel this overwhelming joy that you do carry out your word and you do fulfill all your promises, both good and bad, Lord, and that you have selected a remnant for yourself, Lord. And we look forward to being able to glorify you in heaven for the work that you have done and, and will be doing at, at that time on the earth. Is, and, and you have even chosen to tell us beforehand how it will all play out. And, and Lord, we're just in awe. Allow us, Lord, when we worship you, to do so as, as is right and true, that we might enjoy, as I said earlier, worshiping with the saints who are now in heaven doing just that. Be with this church, Lord, and allow them to continue to be faithful to your word. Be with its leadership, that they would make wise decisions, 
and that in doing so they would again bring you honor and glory regardless of the outcome of being faithful to you Lord keep their witness pure protect them from wolves from men and women who creep in for their own desires to be fulfilled in this body Lord and allow them to raise up a generation after us that will look at your word and when they hear others speak wrongly of it they'd say that's not right and they would respond with humility to point people to the word of the Lord and not the wisdom of man Lord we just pray that you grant us these things Amen.